I listened to a sermon, uh, really a presentation by Pastor John Schrader. He is a missionary who is in at Faith Lutheran Church in Georgia. And I thought he had a pretty interesting way on how worship got started, at least public worship. So I borrowed some of his ideas, at least until we talk about uh, calling on the name of the Lord. With permission, of course. You can uh, just imagine, though, can't you? Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden with not just a promise, but the promise ringing in their ears. It's not that they even wanted to leave the garden or that this leaving was a pleasant thing. They were leaving the only home they knew because the maker of heaven and earth was forcing them out. And why is that? Because of their sin. Of course, this is not what God wanted. God wanted to fulfill that desire that all people have, the desire to live and live and live. That most central desire each of us has in the Lord wanted Adam and Eve to never die and to enjoy blessings not just for a lifetime, but forever. But somehow that was not enough. Adam and Eve never returned to the garden and to the tree of life. Scripture tells us that angels guarded the door with flaming swords. I'm pretty sure God did not want Adam and Eve to be stuck in this uh, perpetual sinful state because he went through this great effort. Whenever you hear about Scripture and read in Scripture about Adam and Eve or any human being, it would be approaching or seeing an angel. It says they're terrified. The first thing often out of the angel's mouth is do not be afraid because they have good news or something like that. So that means just seeing an angel is a terrifying experience. So now Adam and Eve, now sinful, have to look at this angel at the front of the door. I don't think they're going to pass that. But Adam's never even seen a sword. Because why else would you have a sword? It's not like they're cutting fruit down. I mean, they can just pick it. So he's never even seen a sword. And now the sword's on fire. So to assure that Adam and Eve never go into this garden, God has the immortal being with this flaming sword. So I don't think they ever went in. But remember that Adam and Eve did not leave the garden empty-handed. They left with not just a promise, but the promise ringing in their ears. Because the Lord promised to send a seed to crush the serpent's head, And the Lord would come to right all that the human beings had wronged and tainted in this creation. It's not long after Adam and Eve leave the garden, we start to see their descendants. Some believed and some didn't. Cain did not believe, Abel did. Cain became jealous about this. And we actually get a picture or a glimpse of what worship is. It's not just the outward action. It's what's in your heart. Well, Adam had more sons. He had a son named Seth, who was a believer. Cain had sons, and if you go down his line, you run into Lamech. Lamech's kind of a trip. When we see him, he's writing a song about uh, to his two wives, which kind of gives you an idea of the kind of guy this is. So he writes a song to his two wives, basically proclaiming how awesome he is. And my theory is, if Lamech writes a song about how awesome he is, no doubt he's like the first rap star ever because of this. But Lamech did not believe, and he writes about not God, but about him. Seth had sons, and we start to read in Genesis 4, 26. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
This is much more than simply calling out God's name. It's public worship of a holy God. And it's not proclaiming how awesome they are, but instead how awesome is their God. In fact, God does this with his own name. You have to skip ahead a couple books to Exodus chapter 34. And it says he passed in front of Moses, talking about God, proclaiming or calling is that same term, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is really the beginning of public worship. It's not enough to worship God just on your own. The believers felt compelled to proclaim God's name, to call on him and to worship him publicly. And they do. From Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, they proclaim God's name. In fact, Noah, who we usually think of with the ark, which is just a side story. What an amazing story that is. As in the middle of this desert, he's building this giant ship and he's got to explain to people what he's building as people come. Hey, Noah, what are you building? And you can just imagine him going, I'm building an ark. And they're going, a park? Man, for the kids, that's awesome. And he's like, no, no, it's a giant ship in the desert. Because someday God will send rain. But I don't think he did it in a way that he was embarrassed about. Because we read in scripture, it calls him a preacher of righteousness. He proclaimed who God was. And so these men and women call on the name of the Lord. They build altars and they offer sacrifices. This gets a little more formalized, at least worship does, when the people of Israel leave Egypt with the ten plagues. They leave Egypt, they go into the desert with Moses and Aaron, which is uh, Moses' brother, and God instructs them, I want you to build this tent, very specifically. Uh, we call it a tabernacle. So they built this tent where they were to worship, and it had very elaborate and specific ways the people were to worship God. And God prescribed this. He said, I want you to offer sacrifice in the morning and at night and on and on and on. They had certain festivals they were to recognize. This goes on for a number of years until about 1,000, maybe about 500 years later, when they, um, the greatest and wisest man who ever lived, which would be Solomon, had a chance to build a permanent temple. So it's very similar to the tent that they had built. And the worship was very similar, but again, it becomes, as the temple became more ornate, it seems the worship became more ornate. They were singing psalms and things like that. This kind of sticks around for a while. And thanks for letting me talk about this history. You might know a Jewish friend and you think, well, my Jewish friend does not worship at the temple. That's because there is no temple now for Jewish people. They probably worship at a synagogue, which is like a congregation or a church for Christians. Now, the background of this is a little bit cloudy, but it seems that as the, uh, the people of Israel, after they had the permanent temple and it was destroyed, some were shipped up to Assyria, never to return. But the people of Judah went to Babylon, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the men in the fiery furnace. They went to Babylon, and while they were there, we get this idea that they started synagogue-type worship. They started to meet in close and small areas. So this continues. We have a pretty good idea about this all the way till the time of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus does this. What do we read in Scripture? Sometimes in Scripture it says, And Jesus went to the synagogue, as was his custom. So at Jesus' time, not only did we have synagogue worship, like local congregations, 
But by that time, they had rebuilt the temple. So you have their initial building, which is in Jerusalem, which is no longer there. It got destroyed in about 70 years A.D. So the initial temple is there, and but the campus around it, what is amazing, we hear that the apostles teaching in the temple courts, and it's not like going to like a Safeway or something like that, or your church you're thinking of. This was a massive structure. Jesus overturns the temple, uh, the money changers in the temple court. This is inside the courts of a massive campus. If I did my math right, which is no guarantee, uh, but if I did my math right, the footprint of Coors Field, not the carbon footprint, but the footprint of Coors Field, if you double that, that's how big the campus is. That's how big the campus is of this um, Temple Mount. You can see it now today if you see pictures of Jerusalem. There's um, a golden dome that's often in kind of the skyline pictures. That's actually a mosque that the Muslims have, but they built that exactly on the spot where the Jewish temple was. So this goes on and on, this idea of worship, and they get this permanent structure, and Jesus is worshiping at a time. So why do I bring up all this history? Quite simply, because the parts of worship we use today are modeled after the ancient worship practices. The blessing you might hear at the end of a service, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor, or they used to say, put it, lift up his countenance upon you. That's been said by God's ministers over the heads of his people for 3,500 years. America's a little over 200 years old, to put it in perspective. The readings and the singing of psalms and scripture readings is an ancient practice that seemed to make good sense. And so because they made good sense, they're handed down from generation to generation. That part that's said before communion, the Lord be with you and also with you is the response. That's one of the first parts of the liturgy that the Christians put together. And we've been doing this for over 1,700 years. The Lord's Prayer is from Jesus, or the Apostles' Creed from two, the 200s or 300s A.D. This is not um, written by the Apostles, but it's a summary of their teachings. The Nicene Creed from the 300s. Even some parts of the liturgy are Scripture put to music. You've heard of King David. He had a son, Solomon, who built that temple. Well, David had an affair. He was older, maybe 40 or so in his life, and he has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. He tries to cover this up thinking no one knows. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him through a parable about a man with this lonely sheep that is killed by this rich owner. And he is so angry, um, he wants to know who this man is. And Nathan points out, you're the man. Well, scripture tells us that David, who had musical talent, writes Psalm 51. So right after, uh, what Christians do is right after hearing the sermon, they sing what David sung after recognizing their sinfulness and also recognizing a holy God who forgives, he sings, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. There's something to that. Or the nunc dimittis, it's called, now dismiss us. When Jesus was just eight days old in the temple, which was required, his parents took him in, 
and a man who is um, somehow knows through the Holy Spirit that he would see the consolation of Israel, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one who would save Israel. He knows he's going to see that before he dies, and we assume he's old. So that's why we have pictures of this older man holding a baby. But Simeon takes Jesus in his arms and he sings. In peace, Lord, you let your servant now depart according to your word. For my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for every people, a light to lighten the Gentiles. The depth of the liturgy and the symbols and the meaning have a richness that can take years to understand. And the colors and the pericope, which is the scheduled readings in the scripture put to music, all of this is so deep and so rich. It, it, to comprehend it takes a long time. The question really is this, in worship, if it is so rich, why would we ever think about doing anything else? Simply put, I don't think everyone grasps the depth and the meaning and the history and the symbols on a week-to-week basis. Or to put it maybe another way, the historic liturgy is the heart language of some, but it's not the heart language, the language that communicates best for everyone. You ever known someone who is like a coffee expert or a wine expert or food expert? They're truly something to behold. I read an article when I was in Seattle about one of the coffee buyers for Starbucks. And this man had the ability to not only taste, they would do this cupping, which is in the fields, they, they take the beans, they grind the beans, and they pour hot water on it, kind of crusts across the top, and then they spoon to taste the coffee because there's no filters, no anything. This man, when doing that, can taste not only where, what country these beans are from, like a wine expert can do that, but he can tell you what farm the coffee beans are from. A friend of mine has such an ear for music, he has a listening room with like foam in these tubes on the wall. I don't know if you've ever met anyone like this, but there's tape on the floor exactly where the listening chair should go. And I sat in the chair and... Um, it kind of sounded like my iPhone. I didn't tell him that. That would be truly disappointed in me because I just do not have that same ear for music. And I don't have that same ear for distinct sounds. You know, but really, each of us is particular about something. The times um, we're particular about uh, the cattle or meat or sound or wine or food or football or cars or what kind of truck you drive or the bicycle you ride or the diet and all these things were very particular, even what mattress you use or what kind of pillow you use or what kind of carpet you buy, everybody has particular things that they appreciate. And it can be completely frustrating when someone else does not appreciate it at the same level that you do. The liturgy does have depth in history and tradition that some really appreciate. But like fine coffee or food, many do not. I saw an episode of Castle. Does anyone watch Castle? It's a pretty good show. It's on Monday nights, I think at 8 or something like that. 8 or 9. Might be 9. Um, so I watched Castle and they had an episode where, and I don't know the, the exact details on this, 
but there was an episode where there was like this bootlegged um, scotch that had been hidden. It was supposed to be the best scotch ever. And somehow during Prohibition, it got hidden. And there was no bottles of this legendary scotch left. And suddenly one appears on an auction. And Castle, I guess, is a big scotch guy. So he wants to find this scotch and they kind of track it down because it's linked to a murder. And he finds it and they, they find the guy who bought it at the auction. And he's like kind of this 20-something internet millionaire who the the bottle, Castle just wants to smell it. The bottle is in his recycling bin and he's sitting there and smelling like the cap. And they asked this, he asked him, like, what did it taste like? And this young kid says, well, you know, it's okay. Um, we mixed it with something. And, and this just about, like, cut Castle in half because of the most wonderful scotch that he'd been searching his whole life for, this legendary. It went for, like, $30,000. And the guy mixes it with something. If, if people um, don't fully appreciate the liturgy, does it make sense that you would even give it to them, like that Castle and the bottle of scotch? Does it make sense? Would you just cut it out for everyone? I, I don't think so. Because really, worship, you've got to break down to its primary purpose. I think there's really three purposes to worship. One is be fed by God from his word and sacraments. The second thing is to give God praise for what he has done. Proclaim his name, in a sense. And the third is to encourage and spur one another on fellow believers. That's why you worship in a group. There's no set way, in fact, in Scripture on how we are to worship. No Scripture demands, or I should say that the Scriptural demands are so minimal. A guy named Peter Brunner sums it up this way. He says, you are worshiping God and a Christian in the right way, biblically, if the word is proclaimed, the sacraments are administered rightly, and this gathering is done in Jesus' name. That's it. And I think that's a good summary. For Christian worship, all we need is God's word proclaimed, the sacraments administered rightly, and to be done in Jesus' name. Everything else is really a matter of Christian freedom. And how you worship or the style that we worship in is just a medium or a means to do these things. So within that, we have all sorts of freedom. But just because we can does not mean we should. Back to coffee for a second. The question of coffee, what is the basic purpose of coffee? The basic purpose, I think, is for the caffeine. It's to stay awake. Whether it's bad or good, will coffee accomplish its purposes? Whether it tastes good or not, will, whether you like it or not, will coffee accomplish its purpose if you drink it? Yes. Some people, it's strictly medicinal. Some really like the taste. Caffeine... Though, if this is our primary purpose and you're just trying to get some caffeine to stay awake, isn't it better if you enjoy it? Isn't it better if we enjoy that coffee with friends? Starbucks has got this thing mastered. We can get caffeine, and if you have $8 in your pocket, you can get any kind of coffee you want just the way you like it. And they have this beautiful atmosphere and this sense of community and tables to enjoy it with friends. Food. What's the primary purpose of food? Sustenance for your body is to give us strength and give us energy and to give us calories. So whether you have a $1.50 mac and cheese or you go to a five-star restaurant, it's restaurant week in Denver. We're going with some friends on, on Saturday. I'm pretty excited about that. So whether you go to one of these wonderful 
restaurant week restaurants or you have mac and cheese at your kitchen table, the purpose is the exact same, sustenance. But isn't food better when you like it? Isn't food better when you're eating with someone? I went to lunch with someone on Friday, and I was sitting there. They were running just a couple minutes late, and I didn't know if they were going to make it or not. And I'm in this dilemma because I'm in a restaurant. Do I continue to order food? Um, I already bought my Arnie Palmer. So I'm sitting there thinking, do I order food? Because you feel like a dork kind of sitting by yourself and pretending you got emails to check or something like that or doodling on a napkin because it's just not quite the same as when you get to eat with somebody. What is the primary purpose of worship? Proclaim God's word, administer the sacraments, meet in Jesus' name. You could say it this way. The primary purpose is to be fed by God in word and sacraments, to encourage and spur one another on in Christian community, and to sing and proclaim God's praise. You can worship any way you want. You can, as long as you have those three things. But isn't worship better when you enjoy it? When the music or the style is done in your heart language, a language that communicates to you, who doesn't love singing their favorite song? And isn't it even better when you get to sing your favorite song with other people who enjoy this? I think so. One of my favorite restaurants is the Cheesecake Factory. Has anyone been there? It was a while ago. The busiest, the busiest restaurant in the United States was the Cheesecake Factory in L.A. I love to go there, and I get to go there a fair amount because I'm like a secret shopper. So if you ever see me at the Cheesecake Factory, don't point me out and yell, there's a secret shopper. But essentially, they pay me to go eat their food. It's kind of cool. I get to go about once a month. If you want to know more, just talk to me, and I'll, I'll hook you up with the website. So the Cheesecake Factory is one of my favorite places, and my wife, not quite as much because we get end up splitting the same dish every time, bang, bang, chicken and shrimp. So you go there, and the food is so good, at least in my opinion. And the atmosphere is wonderful. It's amazing how they can turn these spaces into this um, with height and, and music, and everything is just right. And if you go there with friends, it, it's an incredible experience, I think. But my question is, can you take away the people and still have the enjoyables? Yeah, I, I think it could still be okay, right? If I just had the food, and if I was going to eat alone at a restaurant, it would probably be the Cheesecake Factory. This would be really enjoyable. I, obviously, it's better with my wife, but if she's not along, I think I could still tolerate it. What happens, though, if I take away the atmosphere? So my wife isn't with me. Amy's gone, and I'm not eating there, and I'm eating takeout, bang, bang, chicken and shrimp, in Klaus, my car. Now, I'm not saying my 83 diesel doesn't have atmosphere. It does. But would the food still be good? The answer is yes, I've done that before. When it comes to church, you can take away people. You can take away the atmosphere or the music or the style that you love. But you can't take away the food. God's word, or you're going to be hungry. If I go to Starbucks again and again and again, and I don't get coffee, I just hang out in a cool place with my friends, 
I'm going to be tired because I didn't get coffee. If I go to the Cheesecake Factory for every meal, again and again and again, and if I don't get food, no matter how wonderful the atmosphere and the people, I'm going to be hungry. If you go to church and the people are great and the atmosphere and the style is great, but you're not being fed, you're going to be hungry. So it, where am I getting at with all this? What is worship going to look like at Eternal Rock? I guarantee we will proclaim God's word. I guarantee we'll administer God's sacraments rightly. And I guarantee we'll be meeting in Jesus' name. This is what brings us together. Now in our freedom, we take the wisdom of the church past and present and blend these together. But we're a multi-generational church. We have older people and we have younger people. Doesn't it make sense to have and do things that make sense to kids because this is the next generation of believers? Doesn't it make sense to have things that are my age group, middle age group, and, and on my heart language, songs I enjoy to sing? Doesn't it make sense to use some of the things in the past that maybe someone from a different generation has enjoyed? I think it does. But, but when we do use those things, we ultimately want a place that anyone can come and it's simple to follow and they understand what's going on. I don't expect a new person to understand everything that happens, but they should never feel out of place. So if we use a historic um, part of the liturgy, we're going to explain it. Just like if we use a used song, and, and maybe you're a little nervous about a new song, but wasn't every song new at one point? Amazing Grace was new at one point. The Nook Dimittis, obviously it's in Scripture, but 2,000 years ago, that was a new song. At some point, created me, a pure heart of God, got put into music, and that was a new song. So I think it makes some sense to honor church past and present in our wisdom and look what the church has done and use that, but also look what the church is doing and use that. I wish it was so easy, like Starbucks or a restaurant. You just roll in there. I can meet you there because we don't have the same preferences in coffee, but I can get whatever I want. You can get whatever you want, and we can still enjoy the atmosphere and the people. We can go to restaurants, at least if we grow up in the general idea. I can get what I want. You can get what you want. In church, though, it's not quite the same, is it? This is a corporate thing. You can listen to whatever Christian music and sing whatever hymns or songs you want to sing in your personal devotional life, but in public worship, it's a little bit different. It's like going to a movie. From my experience, if I go to a movie with someone, we generally go to the same movie, right? Otherwise, you're not really going together. I long for the day I can go to a movie theater with my kids, and they can shoot over to a movie they want, and I can see a movie I want. That said, uh, Tangled was pretty good. The same thing is with church. You can't just show up, and we can't just show up and expect to get only the things that we like, right? But that doesn't mean there's not going to be anything we don't like. And when someone else is playing something, maybe even from 250 years ago, I had a guy at my old church. He wouldn't listen to music. He wouldn't sing a hymn unless it was less than 100 years old. I said, okay, that's fine, Bobby. But doesn't it make some sense if um, to use these things in the past and appreciate that for someone, that is their heart language, 
And even if it's not yours, to sing along and understand this means someone to something, and they're being fed, and you're being fed, at least cognitively understanding what's being proclaimed. And if it's something new, and this is not your thing, doesn't it make sense, though, to sing along and appreciate that for someone, this is exactly the way they like it and the way they appreciate it? Because corporately, I hate to use the word compromise, but that's what we need to do. You know, we're going to be a place where you can grow in your faith through the Holy Spirit, encouraged and built up in his word and sacraments. And it's not too long. With the promise of God ringing in our ears, not just a promise, but the promise of God and his son who has come to forgive our sins, that we can begin to call on the name of the Lord. Amen.